0: Adelaide Stratton is one of the most remarkable and courageous people I've met. She's also my constituent. In July 2016, at the age of 22, she did what so many young Australians have always done. To celebrate finishing her media degree, she and three friends went on a holiday of a lifetime to France. What happened on that holiday is an experience none of us would ever expect, but it changed her life. That experience and how she rebuilt her life is the subject of today's podcast. Adelaide, you were 22 in 2016. Tell me what you were doing before you went to
1: France. Yes, I was. It feels like a long time ago, but also not really. Um, I was 22 years old. I'd just finished um, a media degree at Macquarie University and I decided to... You were
0: also working too, weren't you? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I'd been working um, whilst at uni for a children's production company. Um, So I kind of started off a career in television, but I'd never... I'd never travelled, I'd never been to Europe, I'd kind of only ever been to Bali, so I'd seen all the pictures and heard all the stories from all my friends who'd done it and I decided that was the time to do it. Summer was coming up over there and I thought it was the perfect opportunity to go and see all the sights. We landed in London, which was amazing, I'd never been before, Um, my sister was living there at the time so it was wonderful to catch up with her and she took me around to um, Hyde Park and Dad's a huge Beatles fan, so I did a couple of those um, scenes. And you then, walked
0: across uh, the the street at St John's Wood. And, yeah, uh, we
1: did that. We went and saw the old, um, you know, Apple recording studio. And I loved London; it was awesome. And then after that, we um, went to Lagos, Portugal, um, which was really beautiful. The is freezing there, but it was nice and hot and sunny, and got some nice beach time in. And then we flew to the south of France.
0: And um, just before we talk about what happened there, where did the 22-year-old Adelaide expect you'd be today? What, what, what were you hoping you'd come home from from your holiday? What was, what, what was your sort of career and life plan?
1: Then? Yeah, well, I had grand plans. I um, had kind of dipped my toe into TV and loved it and I was really lucky and fortunate to have been mentored by an amazing um, executive producer, um, a woman, a mother a wife and an incredible, um, you know, TV boss, so I wanted to be just like her, so that was my plan. I was, you know, on the path to being a big, you know, executive producer, calling the shots, dealing with budgets, um, creating um, content, so that was, yeah, that was where I was kind of headed.
0: And then you were in Nice on the 14th of July... 2016. Tell us what happened that day. It's
1: Bastille Day, so the Independence Day, so it's a big celebration. Um, We kind of purposely planned to be in France on that day to kind of get amongst all of the festivities. Uh, So we woke up, it was a beautiful day. Um, We did a little bit of shopping at a nearby uh, department store and then um, came back and we'd all decided to grab a baguette. Um, have some cheese, a bottle of wine, down um, on the promenade there in front of the beach, and we started to watch a big parade of people. Uh, and then we'd come across a, a little flyer for a pool party, so we went up to this pool party, and um, yeah, it was lots of fun. Um, there were people absolutely everywhere. It was kind of—I'd never really been in big crowds like that before. Um, it was you know bigger than Australia Day here, and. Kids, old people, young people, uh, and after the pool party, we decided um, to head back to the main street, the promenade, because that's where all the best spots for watching the fireworks were. We'd asked a couple of locals, and they were like, Yep, that's where you should go, Um, that's where everyone will be. So we headed back, um, watched. Uh, It was a pretty good firework display. I don't know. Sydney Harbour's quite spectacular. um, They are a bit spoilt with our fireworks. And then, yeah, all of a sudden, black. And then I woke up um, and I was lying with my back on the ground staring at the stars and I had no idea what had happened. I'd kind of gone from this, you know, crowded, bustling street walking down to all of a sudden... Looking up at the sky, and I can't remember hearing anything. Um, and yeah, it was it was quite a quite a change.
0: And the event that had happened is that a man had driven a, a truck into the crowd, um, which killed eighty six people and injured four hundred and fifty eight others, including yourself, as the Nice terror attack.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, which was um, you know a pretty big shock, and I didn't I didn't actually know what had happened until oh many many hours after the fact um, but I'd kind of you know gone from this jovial exciting time to yeah waking up lying on the ground I could see some stars and I could also see um, a stranger a stranger's face hovering over me and I I could notice that I was I was holding his hand and I thought you know, knowing me, I tripped over, or I don't know, I would kind of fallen down, um, and yeah, I wasn't sure why this man was holding my hand, um, and I didn't really know what had happened, but yeah, things kind of revealed themselves after a few hours. Um.
0: So, how long were you were you there before you went before you got taken to hospital?
1: Um, well, I didn't really have any sense of time in the moment, but I'd since found out that I was lying on the on the road there. Um, for about two and a half hours, um, I've I received my hospital bracelet and that sort of thing, and it said that my admission time was, I think, like one thirty in the morning the next day. So this had happened around ten o'clock at night. So it was you know quite a bit of time before I'd ended up in hospital, um, and yeah, I just I remember a few things from that moment I remember this man's hand holding my face I remember being pushed into the back of an ambulance um this man was still there and he I remember being really worried about my handbag and I must have said something and and I, I remember him holding up my handbag to say that he'd had it and then I remember um being in an emergency room with all sorts of maybe four or five doctors hovering over me um stitching me up um you know touching my leg and neck and um yeah It was then that a doctor asked me in very broken English if I'd been in the explosions. Um, So things kind of started to click then, that this wasn't just me tripping over. This was probably something a little bit more serious.
0: Um, If it's not too painful, can you tell me about some of the injuries that you suffered?
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm extremely lucky, um, but I did have um, serious burns to... um, my right leg, um, from about my ankle to my knee. I had um, seven facial and head fractures, including um, a fracture of my base of skull, so just above the top of my neck. Um, Lacerations to the face, the chin, the jaw. um, Kind of, yeah, top-to-toe injuries, but the major ones were my right leg and obviously, you know, the broken skull, (laughs)
0: And uh, did this result in some concussion, or what? What's the nature of the?
1: Yeah, and that's that's another one. I had a I had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, so I actually did have a brain injury as well.
0: H- how did you feel when they told you the news of what had happened, and when the reality sank in? Of, of...
1: yeah, well, I. It, to be honest with you, it took me a long time to kind of comprehend what had happened. Um, I was by myself for a lot of hours I just remember you know begging for the wi-fi code because I still had my phone on me of course I hadn't you know paid the extra money for the global (laughs) roaming so um yeah I remember a really kind nurse after you know many requests came and kind of gave me her staff code it must have been so I was able to log on to my phone and then you know as soon as I typed in the wi-fi password I had it huge flood of messages from, you know, parents who'd seen, you know, the news and my friends who were looking for me on that night. Um, And it was, yeah, I think it was my dad who had messaged me um, and kind of told me what had happened. But again, I was in so much shock. It kind of didn't really, I didn't really process what had happened until probably about like a month after when it really dawned on me what I'd survived and... um, yeah, how lucky I'd been.
0: And how long were you in hospital for? What was the recovery like?
1: Yeah, so I was I was in hospital in France for two weeks, and then I was medevacked out, um, and then I was in hospital in Sydney for another two weeks. the The thing that allowed me to leave was after you know my surgeries and that sort of thing. If I was able to walk up a flight of stairs, um, then the physiotherapist. Um, said that you know she was happy for me to be cleared and to to leave so I remember it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to walk up a flight of stairs but I managed to do it um, and yeah i was I was able to kind of go home and just continue my recovery and rehabilitation there
0: you You've benefited in your recovery but also uh, at the time of the accident from the kindness of strangers haven't you tell me about uh, the person that was holding your hand who you've uh, uh, who you've subsequently Stayed in touch with and uh, and become great friends with.
1: Yeah, so that is one of the things that I'm, uh, you know, absolutely so grateful for is that I've got so much positivity around what happened to me, and that's what I kind of choose to focus on. So, you know, I was lucky um, in that first of all I wasn't killed, um, and the other kind of lucky aspect of my story is that after I was injured, um, I was lying on the ground, uh, a French stranger kind of he wasn't injured or hit by the truck but he was there when it happened Um, and I guess everyone's got a fight or flight instinct and his instinct was to fight so he ran towards you know the injured to see if he could help anyone to see if he could find anyone alive and um, unfortunately he tried to help a man um, and you know came up to him and realized that he was no longer with us, and then he was looking around, and out of the corner of his eye, he saw me, um, with my eyes open, and and decided to, you know, run over and see what kind of assistance he could provide. And just knowing, you know, that there are people out there who who were that brave, um, you know, in the face of danger. He didn't know um, if, you know, the terrorist was still there. The police had kind of evacuated the area in case of explosives, um, and rather than leaving um, and, you know, securing his safety, he decided to stay there. He held my hand. Um, He kept me, you know, I I think I was conscious the whole time. I don't really remember. Um, He stayed with me in the makeshift hospital, and then when he noticed that I was kind of deteriorating, I was shaking, and um, he ensured that I was put in the back of an ambulance, um, and then every day he came to visit me. In the hospital in France um, you know we can't speak the same language but we'd really kind of bonded and I think I think for him and actually knowing after speaking with him through translators um, seeing me seeing me recover seeing me walk for the first time and sit up was beneficial for him because you know he'd seen so much death and destruction and this was his home for so long and you know as much as I am so grateful for him um, and knowing that, you know, there's goodness in the world, I know that he kind of looked at me as, you know, this isn't all bad in France either. There are good things.
0: And you've, uh, I think I'm right to say this, you've nominated him for a bravery award in France. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So he, um, he received an Australian bravery award in France, um, which was incredible. So I nominated him. Um, and last year I went over to France and met with the Australian ambassador in Paris and the award was given to him, which was really, really special. And then France um, followed suit and gave him a bravery award. Um,
0: what What did he do? Tell, tell me a little bit about his backstory.
1: Yeah, so he is, um, he loves ACDC, he loves rock <laughs> and roll, um, he was I, he was unemployed at the time that um, we met, um, but he'd had a range of jobs, from um, driving buses to a mechanic. Um, he rode motorbikes back in the day as well. So um, yeah, he's always just been a really lovely, kind of down-to-earth.
0: But just so. felt compelled by what he'd seen to to take some positive action and to yeah. look after you, as it were. Which
1: is absolutely he's the definition of altruistic like he didn't know who I was um you know I I wasn't his family or his friends um and he just decided in that moment to go and and see what he could do to help which is something that I am so grateful for because if I didn't have him you know my memories of the night would have been really really different he distracted me and shielded me from you know a lot of the horrors of what was there and the only things that I can remember um, aside from you know the traumatic recovery in the hospital, were were his face and him, you know his hand. So
0: let me ask you about how you've rebuilt your life and and how you've dealt with some of the tough times. What what? Tell me about the the process of recovery from you, not just the physical recovery, but trying to get your life back uh, back on the road.
1: Yeah, um, it was it was really difficult, and you know recovering from my physical injuries. I was in a neck brace for. Uh, six to eight weeks I couldn't walk without crutches for a long time so the physical um recovering from my physical injuries was was quite difficult you know I was going to physiotherapy there were some days where the only person I would speak to would be my physiotherapist or my doctors a lot of the time um so the physical recovery I put in a lot of work um and you know eventually. I was able to move my neck and, you know, look over my shoulder and I was able to walk up a flight of stairs without having to stop. And, um, that Were there was
0: days great. during that period that you wondered, oh, this is so much pain, would I, ever, would I ever be able to move my neck and would things get back to normal?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, there was definitely times where I thought, you know, this is this is so much work, this is really, really hard. But um, in a way, well, actually definitely recovering from my physical injuries was a lot easier than recovering from the mental aspect because there was a very obvious start and finish and there were very obvious steps that I had to take to recover from that. So if I knew I needed to, you know, go to physio four or five times a week, I'd do that, whereas mental health, it's a lot, you know, it's not as clear cut. There's not really a start and a finish with no. that recovery. So um, that was that was the thing that I was kind of surprised by.
0: How did you deal with the hard times um, uh, through that recovery, particularly with the mental health?
1: Yeah, um, it was really, really important um, to me that I always had um, my family around or someone to talk to. So I was very, very lucky in that sense, that I've got a really supportive family, um, really supportive relationships around me. um, And so I relied on those people a lot. Um, I was... I know I was a nightmare to deal with um, in the early days because I was so, you know, I was in survival mode and I just had to do what I had to do um, to get through the day. So I know that I came across as probably quite selfish and, you know, quite rude to people. I was, you know... Snappy, and it was, you know, some days I couldn't get out of bed. um, But I'm really grateful to those people around me that just persevered and just, you know, put up with my mood swings and, you know, the days that I wasn't able to talk. Um, So relationships are really important. um, And having a set routine I found was really, really important for me. Um, So even though I couldn't do a lot of things, um, getting up at the same time, um, trying to get out and get some fresh air, even though, you know, even when I was in a wheelchair. Um, and, yeah, hobbies as well were, were pretty what, important. What,
0: what did you take up by way of hobbies or what did you pursue?
1: Yeah, well, I came across, when I, when my physical recovery, when my, you know, I was physically recovered, um, I discovered pottery and ceramics, um, which was brilliant. So many doctors um and friends had kind of told me you need to meditate you need to you know start practicing mindfulness and i just thought the last thing i want to do is to be stuck with my own thoughts like i just yeah. i couldn't i couldn't do it but i came across um wheel thrown ceramics um, my sister's signed me up for a class and there was something really meditative about that and that kind of became my way of shutting off and you know, tuning out my thoughts and that sort of thing. And through that, I've, you know, been able now... Now I can practice meditation and I'm allowed to be alone with my own thoughts. But, um, yeah, that was a really great hobby that I, I kind of picked up through my recovery.
0: Four years on, what does the other side look like? Well, how's your life changed?
1: Uh, my life is is quite different, but, um, you know, I'm still the same person as well. I just think that I, I do have quite a different outlook on things now. Um, The Adelaide before, you know, this terrorist attack before facing death and and surviving um, was probably a little shallow, maybe a little um, caught up in in the small stuff and, um, you know, I cared a lot about how I was perceived in the world whereas now um, I've kind of realised it's really important to do what makes you happy Um, rather than trying to kind of fill the mould of what you think you should be doing. It's also really important to nurture the relationships in your life um, because when things are bad, they're the people and, um, yeah, they're the people who will get you out of it, really. Um, So, yeah, just not sweating the small stuff and focusing on on the people around you.
0: And you've done um, more than that. You also look to try and... uh Follow the court proceedings in france how how's that how are they going um,
1: yeah it's it has been it's been quite difficult with that just because of the whole you know me not speaking French um, but i've 've been told i've got a lawyer in France and um, the the classic line is this will take a long time um, so i've been told you know it's it's not a sprint it's a marathon um, i know that there are criminal proceedings against accomplices who helped um the terrorists that night um and i am registered as a party civil which is trying to get an in- investigation into you know the safety of the evening um and whether um the you know local council did everything that they could to kind of prevent this um but yeah i haven't really heard many updates since about what's going on, but...
0: It's remarkable that you followed this because uh, uh, the system in France is so different uh, and because, you know, there's a temptation to just say, oh, it's all it's all done. But um, there were obviously things that could have happened uh, that may well have prevented um, uh, the terrorist... Um, getting through the, the, the crowd there and injuring the people that you did and killing the people that you did as well. And I think it takes a remarkable courage to keep following the uh, the, the, the particular, I mean, the, the proceedings, given all the difficulties that you face too.
1: Yeah, thanks, Julian. It is, you know, some days it's hard and some days I'm like, oh, I, you know, I live so far away, I can just put this in a little shoebox and, you know, not worry about it. But then I think if, if no one's kind of held accountable or if it's not brought up, Um, to the attention of, you know, where were the faults, then who's to say it won't happen again. Um, I think it's really important that everyone learns, you know, from what happened and, you know, we have... I know that the Australian government announced, um, you know, regulations for large events and that's why you see the bollards everywhere and every time, you know, I walk through Martin Place or, you know, I see a cement block... A part of me, you know, is is really sad. I wish that that was there for me that night. But then another part of me is really happy because I know that even though it's ugly, it's it's saving it's there for lives. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And we first met because, um, uh, unlike other terrorist attacks where there were very large numbers of Australians injured, so uh, things like the Bali bombing uh, or even nine eleven there were very few Australians in, in the Nice terror attacks. I think, was it four, am I right in thinking that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, there were, yeah, um, no Australians died um, and four injured.
0: So it's perhaps not as well known as some of the other uh, terror attacks or even the terrible um, terror attack at the Lindt Cafe um, a few years ago here. So you were concerned not just for yourself, but for what Australia was doing um to help people who've been victims of of terrorist attacks. That's why you came to see me. Tell me a little bit about the work you've done there.
1: Yeah, so um, I was very grateful for your help. Um, You know, you introducing me um, to particular people um, which have really kind of allowed me to shine the light on uh, victims of international terrorism. Um, I am so thankful and grateful that I've got my supportive family and a really strong network but for me um the the thought that always played in the back of my mind was what would I have done had I been um a 75 year old woman on her retirement trip for the lifetime and who didn't have a family or maybe who lived regionally and didn't have access to services and um that thought you know, it still plagues me and so it, it kind of motivated me to, to speak up and, and meet with yourself and I also met with the counterterrorism coordinator. I've met with um, the victims' rights commissioner um, and a bunch of other people in Australia as well as overseas to kind of talk about my story a little bit more and, and discuss the struggles um, that I kind of experienced um, in the hopes that support kind of will be boosted and through uh, meetings and conversations that I've had um, the Australian government has um, made a few changes including access to translation services because that's been something that I've really struggled with every time I get a letter or an email from the French government it's of course in French so you know Google Translate's good but (laughs) it would be nice to kind of know that what the, you, it's done
0: the job properly. Yeah, so yeah. that
1: was that was wonderful. And um, through meeting with victims' organisations in France and also um, through attending a dinner, um, I was invited by uh, Mr Malcolm Turnbull um, and the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was also in attendance. So I was able to hand him a letter um, just you know, discussing a few of the issues that I had And through that letter, um, the president of France was able to send a doctor to Australia um, to do um, some medical testing um, because before that they had asked um, and kind of required that I return to Nice or return to France to get my medical um, assessments done, which obviously... A bit ridiculous. Yeah, I wasn't really in a place to kind of fly back to you know such a traumatic space for me to go Mm. through such a traumatic process so um that was pretty great i believe it's the first time that um a french doctor in their compensation scheme has done that so that was kind of a great breakthrough that's Um, fantastic yes and and through through meeting with international um support services, I was invited to the United Nations last year um, for the, it was the second year of the um, remembrance of and tribute to uh, victims of terrorism and I got to speak um, at the United Nations and meet with um, other survivors of terrorism from all around the world and just discuss our experience, discuss our resilience and also ways of you know, improving support. So I've done some pretty incredible things that i never would have expected to do
0: and you've been a force for positive change too which is uh, which is tremendous what does the future hold for you adelaide
1: that's a great question um you know i every day is different and i've kind of realized now you can have a plan and you can have a path but life is also just going to kind of happen um but yeah right now um i am kind of hunkering down, rethinking my future path and I've actually just applied for um, my Masters of Teaching. Um, in the last few years, I've, I've started teaching ceramics and pottery so I've turned my hobby into a job um, and I just want to, you know, continue that and kind of get, a, get um, a little bit more of a background in education. So That's, that's fantastic.
0: Well, thank you so much, Adelaide, for your time. Adelaide Stratton, coming soon, hopefully to a classroom near you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks.